The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Serving spiritual seekers around the world. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here's your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Show. I always love it when the Unity person says that this is the voice of an awakening world. And, you know, it really is. Unity puts on such amazing programs. We are very honored and grateful to be one of them. And that awakening world thing really has something to do with what I'm going to be speaking with with my first guest, Just a little uh, teaser for second guest. After the break, we're going to be speaking with Barbara J. King, who is a former anthropology professor and a current author of a wonderful, wonderful book called Personalities on Your Plate. But right now, in the interest of the world's awakening, We're going to be talking with Michael Weberman. He is strategic director of a brand new enterprise that is so exciting, I can barely contain myself. You know how you go around and you try to interest people in at least talking about veganism and giving them some of the information? And sometimes you succeed and sometimes you get this kind of blank stare And think, well, wait a minute, I said the same thing to that person last week who's really on board, and now I just said it to this person, and it's as if nothing happened. Well, maybe it's because we're not specific enough in how we reach out to people. Well, Better Eating International is all about being specific and also being specific about their target audience, teenagers. They want every teenager in this country to know about veganism before he or she turns 25 and welcoming someone who probably isn't much more than 25, Michael Weberman. Hi, Victoria. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) How are you doing? Nice to hear you. Yeah, you too. It's uh, last time I saw you was, uh, I think, October in New York, huh? That's right. Well, I know that you spent some time with Farm Animal Rights Movement and Alex Hershaft, great friends of the program, great friends of the animals. And now you and this beautiful group of young people, you sent a color photographs of everybody who is involved with Better Eating International. And it reminded me of one of those startups in Silicon Valley. You know, everybody's young, everybody's cool. And it just seems so exciting what you're about to do. So explain it to us. 
Uh, thanks. Yeah, no, that's definitely uh, not a total accident. We basically do see ourselves in many ways kind of like a marketing startup, except instead of uh, selling a product, we are selling veganism. <clears throat> and not selling, of course, but giving it. And uh, and yeah, you said it exactly right when you talked about the, the specificity of the audiences uh, earlier. But yeah, in short, we're a new nonprofit organization, and we're seeking to ins- inspire compassion for animals through a, a new form of inclusive and empowering vegan education. Uh, we see these efforts to change how people eat as, of course, part of a worldwide movement to change, you know, create a future in which animals are valued as unique individuals no longer exploited for human gain. And the specific strategy that we're using in our first pilot program is developing a stockpile of hundreds of 30-second animated PSA videos that cover the various whys and hows of veganism from dozens of different angles with considerations towards people's unique backgrounds, interests, age, location, and more. And you're going to target these people online, kind of like how Facebook does with ads? That's exactly correct. Yeah, yeah. They're um, not just Facebook, but all sorts of uh, companies and and causes. So this is something obviously target marketing has been used in various forms by companies for decades, you know, just as a simple thing as putting the same product in a uh, quote-unquote men's magazine differently than you'd put it in a quote-unquote women's magazine. Uh, that's the you know the most obvious kind of classic example of how this has been done. And then you know putting the same product in um, the AARP magazine or a golf magazine different than how you would put it in a uh, gun magazine or in a sports magazine or in a music magazine. You know, there's any number of ways that the same idea can be, um, you know, delivered to a different audience. And in the last 10 or 15 years, this has been used much more by social causes. Uh, one really the most uh, prominent example was Obama's 2012 campaign. Uh, so in 2012, um, you know, President Obama was certainly not nearly as popular as he was in 2008, and there was a lot of talk that his uh, that the reelection was going to be a lot closer than the 2008 campaign was, and yet the map ended up looking almost exactly the same. He had a smaller share of the popular vote, but the basically exact same number of electorates, and the reason was because he used an aggressive form of target marketing and he made sure to reach you know moderates differently than he reached dedicated democrats differently than he reached hardcore liberals he made sure to reach you know people who were in college differently than he reached people who had young families differently than people who are retired and he reached people over social media differently than he reached people over email differently than he really reached them over direct mail and his messaging made sure to speak to people's unique experiences to their values to their concerns and to show them why he was the president for them and it worked beautifully um and he turned what was expected to be a close race into a landslide and so we're you know looking to use a lot of the same tools that have already been used by winning corporations and winning political candidates and use it you know for the animals oh it's it's really really exciting and you decided to target teenagers for obvious reasons well yeah just at first you know eventually the goal is that we would not be pigeonholed that way but we've got to start this pilot project somewhere i mean frankly to do this right you know down the line it's going to cost tens of millions of dollars a year and there is no way we were going to make that in our first year of course and so we said you know we have experience already creating effective vegan video campaigns to young people. Uh, Many of us have been doing it for years and years on tours, online, etc. And we know a lot of the messages that work. But just like you said, Victoria, in your intro, sometimes you say the same thing that just worked with one person and you get a blank stare from the next one. And so we're saying we already know the basic flow, the core concepts of what get you know young people, high school or college um, students, etc to consider a vegan diet. But what is it going to take to tweak from there and make the message even more powerful? And so what we can do is we can start with a basic suite of 8 to 10 you know, kind of core videos that we already know will do pretty well. And then we can micro-target them for another eight to 10 separate audiences. So we'll have a variation of the, you know, chicken farming video, a variation of the dairy farming video, a variation of the climate change video, a variation of how to stock your fridge, of how to deal with social situations for lots of different audiences. 
And so we might find that in some we go more emotional, in some we go more fact-based, based on who that audience is. We might find that we skip the stalking your fridge video entirely for someone who lives in a dorm because they don't have a fridge and instead replace that one with a how to eat at your campus dining hall video and skip the campus dining hall video for someone who doesn't live in a dorm because that's going to be a useless video to them. And we realize that people really do drop out of, of an educational experience once they receive content that's not useful to them. And so I think a lot of people have thought in the past, well, we'll just put it all in one guide. We'll make our vegan starter guide have a section on pregnancy and a section on athletes and a section on students and a section on families and a section on, you know, on this and that. And the problem is once people see too much content that's not geared for them, they don't find the content that is geared for them anymore either. And so it's not just about finding the content that's right for people, but it's also about uh, blocking them from the content that's irrelevant for them so that they don't see our movement as one that's not for them. That is brilliant. Now, I know you've chosen to use animation instead of of graphic footage of factory farms and slaughterhouses. Why is that? Yeah, the reason that we're using, especially in the in the ads, uh, the ad delivery system animation, it's twofold. One is that the live action footage is actually censored quite often. It's not censored in text-based ads. So you can say, click on this video, learn the truth about animal farming, and take someone to your website where you show graphic footage. But if you want that to run in stream, like before they watch a YouTube video or in the middle of them watching something on Hulu.com or ESPN.com, they're very, very strict with the type of content that can be shown. And the graphic footage, by the time you can get live action footage shown in those scenarios, you've lost everything that was persuasive. You can't show the debeaking, you can't show the killing of baby animals, you can't show the slaughter, you can't show the animals, you know, suffering to death, uh, you know, under the crippling weight of their own, you know, the weight of their own growth on the farms. All you can really show is confinement. And sure, we know why confining animals is so bad, but in a quick video, that's actually not the most powerful or the most persuasive of the factory farm abuses. And so we know that if we want to have the most persuasive content, we really can't show it in in-stream ads live action. And the other thing is it's much easier to tweak content for different audiences when you're illustrating it, when you can just make little tweaks based on your own animations. And if you get feedback, say we deliver it to one audience and we find that we just really missed the mark on something, you know, we just find out that the way we framed a message was just wrong. Uh, we can just quickly make an adjustment and redeliver that same video to that audience without having to go and get people back in the same location and reshoot and everything. And so it's a much easier process to make quick adjustments to, which of course is key to a segment marketed world, and it's also a lot more likely to make it past sensors online. This is great. I love your energy. I love your idea. Now, I know that you are doing a crowdfunder, and it's unique in that if you get to a certain level of funding, that funding will be doubled. So tell us what we can do and how that's going to work. That's correct. Yeah. So we have a, there's a foundation and they provided us with a little bit of startup costs already. It's how we're paying ourselves right now, actually. And, you know, they said they want to invest more money in this project, but that they need to see the movement support is behind it. They can't be the sole funders of it. And so they said, if we can raise, um, you know, about a hundred thousand dollars and we looked at the budget, we needed just shy of that. Um, they said, if we can raise a hundred, they'll match it. And so we're doing a crowdfunding campaign for 97 thousand five hundred dollars um which will be doubled to one hundred ninety five thousand dollars which is what we need to create the first eight segment uh markets basically for this project and so they are going to match it offline that is they're just going to write us a check for the amount in full if we get over the line uh but the other piece of this is that it's all or nothing so with kickstarter if you fall short of your goal you get absolutely nothing and so really what this has amounted to is it's a double or nothing campaign if we get $97,000, we get $195,000. If we get $96,000, we get nothing. <laughs> yeah, so it's really high stakes. It's really ambitious. It's one of the most stressful things I've done in my entire life. Uh, but it's really exciting. And right now, we are over two-thirds there. We're at over $60,000. And Fantastic. we've got one. Yep. 
Yeah, yeah. Yesterday was a really big day. We uh, we got about fifteen thousand dollars yesterday alone. It was our biggest day of the campaign, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, and we've got one week left. So if we can get over the finish line in one week, uh, everyone's pledge will be doubled. And there's also no risk to people because if they pledge and we don't make it, their re- their pledge is refunded. So yes. they can know that we aren't going to half-ass this project. I hope I can say half-ass. Um, oh, you, we you just did. <laughs> Uh, we won't half heart this project. Yeah. Um, that basically we don't want to waste anyone's money. This is an ambitious project and it's only going to happen if we can do it right. And so if we get over the finish line, it will be matched and doubled. And if we don't, we'll have to start over and try something new. Wow. Your, your courage is really rare, remarkable and impressive. So what people just go to Kickstarter and look for better eating international. It's even easier. We actually made a special link kickstarter.bettereating.com. So again, that's just kickstarter.bettereating.com. Or if you search better eating within Kickstarter, either way you'll get to the project. It's called better eating targeted vegan educational videos. Okay, kickstarter.bettereating.com. I will put that in the show notes. And listeners, I hope you can donate. And I know everybody on earth wants you to donate to everything. And maybe you can't do this or you can't do all of it. But maybe you could tweet it or, or let your friends know or put it on your Facebook page. Because this is really unique and it sounds like such a great way to reach people who are going to be making these changes on into the future which is what we really need. So, Michael, last word. Uh, no, no, you nailed it, Victoria. I think you, I think you got it absolutely right. I'm really excited uh, for this project. And I, like you said, I hope your listeners can either make a pledge themselves or at minimum uh, tell their friends and family about the project. Well, it, it's a wonderful, wonderful idea. And once you're up and running and you have a minute to spare, maybe you can come back on the program and talk about how we as individuals can target our messages and reach Ooh, the guy on one. the bus. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be a fun one. I mean, in short, just so you know, the shortest answer to that is ask questions first. Yeah. Instead of coming out the gate with your message, ask a couple questions. Yeah, that sounds really good. I know uh, Michael Parrish Dudell who kind of reminds me of you. I don't know if you know Michael. He's a very young, fabulous. He's in the business world now. He wrote the Shark Tank's business book, but he has his Pythagorean tattoo, you know, (laughs) hidden under there. And he always says that when he tells people his own vegan story, he listens to see where they lean in. So if it's the fact that he lost a lot of weight, or if it's the fact when he says some kind of animal abuse Mm. fact, or if he says something about the environment, that you can just tell if somebody's kind of their eyes open wider or they just come a little bit closer, then that's the thing that's going to speak to them. And it's always so tempting to want to talk about what we're passionate about, but more effective, obviously, to go with what they're passionate about. Yeah, that's excellent advice. I think he's spot on with that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, this is so exciting. Better Eating International, everybody, kickstarter.bettereating.com. Um, we'll put that in the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Thank you so much, Michael Weberman, and very good luck with this. Thanks Everybody so much, else, Victoria. Yes, stay with us. We are going to be bringing on Barbara J. King, and we are going to be talking about personalities on the plate. you like to share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world that's easier than ever with mobile giving just text unity radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? 
Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome especially to people who are listening to the program for the first time. Thank you for finding us out there on all of the bigness and infinitude of the web. It's wonderful to know that you managed uh, to find what we're doing today here on Unity Online Radio. If you want to know more about what happens at Main Street Vegan, do check us out at MainStreetVegan.net. And you'll find all sorts of interesting info there, particularly Main Street Vegan Academy, where we train and certify vegan lifestyle coaches. Also, under podcast, you can find the show notes where you'll have ways to reach our fascinating guests and learn more about their work. We've also got a blog over there and the post this very week I wrote myself. It's called From Compulsive Eating to Conscious Eating and it's actually the essay that I contributed to the new book, The Reducitarian Solution, which has been getting a whole lot of press, a little bit controversial in the vegan world because it doesn't say everybody needs to be vegan yesterday. But I look at it as stepping onto one of those moving walkways at the airport. It's going to get you a lot closer to your gate than if you had never gotten on. So do take a look at this week's blog. I hope you will. MainStreetVegan.net. And now I am so pleased to be introducing our featured guest. And also to say I do listen to listeners because Barbara J. King was recommended by listeners. They were saying, when are you going to have her on? I said, soon as I can get her. So that happens to be today. Barbara J. King is a biological anthropologist, recently retired from 28 years teaching at the College of William and Mary. She is now a full-time freelance science writer and public speaker, focusing on animal cognition, emotion, welfare, and rights. Her previous book, How Animals Grieve, was translated into French, Japanese, Hebrew, and Portuguese. And her new book, Personalities on the Plate, The Lives and Minds of Animals We Eat, got a fabulous review last month in the Wall Street Journal. And I can see why, because I have been reading it. And it is just stunning, both the information and the writing. Oh, it's delicious. I love reading books that are really, really good. Welcome, Barbara J. King. Oh, thank you so much, Victoria. That was a very kind introduction, and I'm so happy to be here talking with you. Well, it's wonderful to be reading your book because I love science writing because I have a hungry mind and I want to know how scientists think because I'm not a scientist. So it's a little bit like reading something in another language. And I find that one problem I have sometimes is that the information is wonderful but the way that it is being presented to me is not getting through. And yours does. You use story and animal stories. And, oh, it's it's just stunning. Personalities on the plate. So tell us first, let's start at the very beginning. What is a biological anthropologist and how does that make you interested in animals? 
Oh, okay, sure. Well, anthropology, as you all know, is the study of humankind just taken very comprehensively. So in America, we have four subfields, and biological anthropology is one of them. We study the evolution of our species and our closely related relatives, the monkeys and apes. And my colleagues in the other subfields are archaeologists, linguists, and cultural anthropologists. And together, we feel that paints a pretty big, holistic picture of, of who we are. So from the very beginning of my life, I always was fascinated by and wanted to live with animals. And when in college, I discovered that I could make a life from studying monkeys and apes, I became thrilled, excited, and that's what I did. I uh, went to Africa for two and a half years, first to studying ironically, captive chimpanzees, but then wild baboons. And I became so fascinated by the intelligence and the emotion of other primates, and that eventually broadened out to consider so many different kinds of animals. I know that you opened the book with the story of eating at the carnivore restaurant in Kenya. Yeah, yeah. And how, you know, you'd been living with animals, studying animals, and then you went to this restaurant and ate so many different kinds of meat representing the death of so many different kinds of animals. And today you see that disconnect, but back then you didn't. What changed? Oh, a lot of change. This was way back in the 80s, I should make clear, because I cannot imagine myself doing such a thing um, today. And I think, you know, in the beginning, I was trained, as you noted in your introduction, very scientifically and my training was a traditional scientific training where, you know, one doesn't become emotionally involved with one's subjects. So I was studying uh, monkeys, baboons, and the idea was to study them in the aggregate, to work for over a year to come up with averages, how the average monkey foraged, fed, learned, this kind of thing. And There is, I believe, a certain disconnect built into that very system. You see the animals as interesting sort of exemplars, if you will, of processes that you want to know about, evolutionary processes. And somehow that really seeped into me. So fast forward from the 1980s, and I just start really beginning slowly to read scientists Um, Jane Goodall, Mark Beckoff, and others to begin to look at animals myself and to see that, of course, these creatures have inner lives, that all that intelligence and learning I was studying is reflective of what's going on inside them. So over these years, it's been a slow evolution for me, but a steady evolution of coming to become fascinated with many more animals and to, for the very most part, stop eating animals. I eat almost all vegan and vegetarian meals now, and that was a real change for me. It's amazing how you have, particularly in in, in this book, and Personalities on the Plate, chosen to look at some very interesting species, and I hope we can get to a lot of them. My favorite story so far is when you talk about work that was done with pigs, And Uh that the pigs were able to see that if there was an X or an O on a wooden block, the people with the O on the block had treats for them, and they would go to Uh those people. And then they put people in T-shirts with X's and O's, and the pigs went to the people with the O's on the T-shirts. And I was telling my husband this, and I said, oh, my gosh, they can read. (laughs) that, That is stunning. So. What I wanted to say was you've chosen some very interesting species to look at, but since I brought up pigs, tell me some other wonderful pig things. They're such amazing beings. Yes. Well, just to amplify a little bit, I I agree with you that the story about the X's and O's is fascinating because, I mean, we weren't surprised so much when pigs would follow humans carrying big wooden blocks that are O's when people fed them, when they didn't follow people carrying big wooden X blocks when people didn't feed them. That makes sense for animals. But it was that transfer to the two-dimensional world where 
that requires a lot of cognitive sort of machinations in your head to realize that what you were looking at three-dimensionally is just the same as what you were looking at, um, which you're now looking at two-dimensionally. And there's all kinds of fascinating studies that show that pigs have long-term memory. Certainly, they identify each other as distinct individuals, and they identify humans as distinct individuals. When they are raised in enriched environments, we know that they do better cognitively and they do better emotionally, so they're very affected by their environments. So that piglets that are raised with things that are interesting to do and access to their mothers have a cognitive edge. If you ask them to discriminate, for example, a familiar object from um, a novel object and then give them a delay, the ones that had an enriched environment can do better. Part of the work that has really moved me is just about the personality of pigs, the fact that if you get to know an individual pig, you will see that these animals have amazing likes and dislikes. And many of your listeners may know about Esther the Wonder Pig. This is the famous pig who was purchased as a supposed micro pig, a very tiny pig, by two men in Canada. And it turns out that she was never a micro pig, and she now weighs like 600 pounds. And this animal lives in their house, um, takes care of her potty needs by going outside the door, has likes and dislikes with food, enjoys life with the family just as a dog would. And so you can sort of marry the really experimental studies of pigs with the fact of knowing what happens if a pig isn't slaughtered at six months and gets to have a whole life where the whole personality blooms and you marry together that intellect and that personality and you've got a fascinating creature. It it is amazing. I remember being at Farm Sanctuary with just a little piglet. I mean, this this guy was a baby, and he was very interested in a shiny key ring that I had. And I thought he was going to tear it up, so I put it in my pocket and tried to distract him with other things, which would have worked with a human baby. Mm, mm -hmm. Nothing would do. Mm -hmm, He was mm -hmm. routing in my pocket. You know, he had to get to the thing that he really wanted. I was very impressed. Oh, that's a laser beam focus. In fact, I was just emailing with Farm Sanctuary in New York just an hour ago. I was asking them what is uh, the name and the story of a long-lived pig, and they told me about a pig named Teresa who lived to be 15, because in some of the writing I'm doing now, I'm really trying to focus on the difference between that six-month age at which we all know an average pig raised for food is slaughtered, and the long life that a pig can have and enjoy when taken care of properly as at Farm Sanctuary to enjoy all the fruits of that cognition and that emotion. It, it is an amazing thing when we think not just about the, the terrible way that animals are raised for food and the horror of slaughter, but that we're actually denying someone the, the right to grow and mature and have a life that, Ooh, that's another way of, of looking at all of this. So, Barbara, one of the fascinating things about your book is that you start with more unusual animals, particularly when we're talking about those who wind up on the plate. So tell us, why did you choose the octopus for one of your chapters? I have fallen in love with octopus. I, You know, it just... Certain feelings for certain animals just come over me, and perhaps I can't rationalize them, but octopus fascinate me. We know that they are invertebrates, okay? So they're cephalopods like squid, they're mollusks, they're invertebrates. These are all the categories into which they belong. And in 2014, a group of scientists got together and they drafted what's called the Cambridge Declaration of Consciousness, making a statement from science about the numbers of animals who consciously feel and experience their lives. And the one invertebrate that was included on that list is the octopus. Now, I'm not sure that that's correct, that perhaps there should be others. But in other words, the invertebrate poster animal for cognition and thinking is the octopus. So one thing I do when I public speak now is I show a video that was shot by a man named Julian Finn in Indonesia that shows the veined octopus sort of um, 
tentacle walking along the sea floor and encountering a coconut that has fallen off some kind of a tourist boat. And the coconut manages to become a little mobile home for the octopus. So the octopus gets inside and manages to move across the seafloor holding the coconut. Then at the end of this walk, opens both halves, climbs inside, and pulls the little shell, the little top of the shell down over his or her body. And, you know, this isn't a Disney movie. This is really happening. This is tool use, the ability to take an object and fashion something that helps you, a little home away from predators, for example. These octopus are thinking as they're doing this. This isn't instinctual. In the laboratory, we know that they can solve all kinds of problems, escape from all kinds of places that they shouldn't be able to get away from. And it's hard sometimes You know, when you look at a pig, you're looking at a mammal. You're looking into eyes that look back at you. It takes some doing for a primate like us to look at an octopus that's so different from us and recognize that intelligence. And that, I think, is why I'm so fascinated to know that that inner life is there. Even though when I look at an octopus, perhaps it isn't an immediate connection. It's an admiration that I feel. And you probably know about the chromatophores, these color-changing cells on the octopus's body. We may have all seen the videos where an octopus quickly can camouflage like the background bush or seafloor to, again, escape predation. But the mood of the octopus also um, is telegraphed by the changing chromatophores. So if a certain octopus is very excited, they may flash red. If they're bored or not feeling well, they may go white. And this is another clue that these animals have a lot going on. I loved everything you said, but there was one phrase that I am going to borrow. You said, a primate like us. I don't Uh think that's how most humans think. We think we are humans, and then there's everybody else, including primates. But a primate (laughs) like us, beautiful. I need to talk with more anthropologists. Now, as you wrote this beautiful chapter about the octopus and and your beautiful chapters about all these beings, it reminded me that I thought that by the time people were writing books like yours, the world, with the possible exception of Eskimos and a few people in scattered places, would be pretty much vegetarian. How could we know what we know and have so relatively few people acting on it. And then at the end of your chapter on octopus, you're talking about how they're thinking of factory farming them Uh and creating an octopus meat empire. Where's the disconnect? Yeah, isn't that appalling? I mean, we know that aquaculture is becoming such a big thing, and we know that so many fish farms are really quite hellish places for fish, and now this project is being floated as quite serious to have octopus farming, and it just makes me cringe. And you, of course, ask the central question of why. How are we able to wall ourselves off from what I consider to be you know, such sentient, um, incredible life all around us. You know, we don't need to ask questions about is there intelligent life in the universe. I mean, we should, of course, as scientists, but we don't need to ask if there's only intelligent life out in space because we're surrounded by it every day. I, I don't know the answer to the why except that I think we have trained our minds to notice in many cases uh, and I certainly exclude um, vegans, vegetarians, reducitarians, but many people have trained their minds to notice certain animals and not others, to think that it's great when dogs and chimpanzees and whales are smart, but to simply turn it off when we talk about chickens, cows, pigs, goats. I read a study that I included in my afterward that really sort of shocked and, and enlightened me. It was uh, a study done by Steve Lofman and his colleagues from 2012 or 13, they asked a bunch of American study participants uh, to think about tree kangaroos. These are animals that live in Papua New Guinea. Half of the participants were simply told that the animals live in Papua New Guinea. The remaining half was told that the animals live there and are eaten. 
And all that it took was to be told that they were eaten. They were considered to be less intelligent animals, less capable of suffering, and less deserving of moral concern. So I think part of the answer to your question is there. We want our food you know, to, to, to be incapable of suffering. It's a story that we tell ourselves, and I wish it were otherwise. Well, you're, you're certainly helping it to become otherwise. So how, how have your own habits changed as a result of the research that you did for this book? Well, there, I have not eaten pigs and cows and octopus and lambs and sheep and, and on and on for, for a number of years. I remember, um, the day, and it was about six years ago in 2011, I had not been eating, you know, beef and pigs for a long time, but I read the book Chicken by Annie Potts, the New Zealand animal studies scholar, and I stopped that day. And, and so for me, it's been an evolution um, that has been slower than I would like now what I'm doing is I'm experimenting with um, vegan milks, vegan cheeses. I've fallen in love with certain vegan pizzas. I'm drinking um, almond milk. I'm beginning to expand, you know, beyond just not eating meat. I will say in the interest of wanting to be ethical and honest that I do not um, fairly describe myself as a vegan. I'm not there yet. I'm getting closer all the time. I have had um, a number of, of sort of challenges in, in thinking about the fact that I still do occasionally, not very often, eat a fish. And that makes people, some people very angry at me. And I do understand that. But that is where I'm at. Well, I think we all have our story. And depending upon when you ask someone <laughs> where they are on their journey, you're going to get where they are at that day. And I, I think you're amazing. And and so does everyone in this movement. I told you during the break that um, Michael Weberman, who was our first guest, when he heard that you were going to be the other guest, he said, oh, I'm so honored. I get to be on the same show as Barbara J. King. So that's cool. Now, you've mentioned uh, in our interview so far, Mark Beckoff, uh, Annie Potts. I know Jonathan Balcom, who's a, a great uh, friend mm-hmm. of Main Street Vegan, uh, has given you an endorsement for personalities on the plate. So how how big is this movement of scientists having an interest in animals as individuals? Or are there just a few of you who uh, wave at one another at conferences? (laughs) No, I think that I am now privileged to be part of a large number of people. I mean, I could... um, tell you about, you know, Carl Safina is another example, Virginia Morell, it just goes on and on. Um, And I think this is something that is, you know, science is catching up with. In other words, we, people have known from interacting with animals in their own lives, taking care of animals in sanctuaries, these kinds of places, that we are dealing with profoundly sentient creatures. And we're coming back now in a weird way to this kind of science that was done before with better observational techniques. I mean, when I say science done before, I'm thinking back to Charles Darwin, who, as in so many other ways, was amazingly prescient, who would say that not only dogs and monkeys, but all kinds of animals were solving problems. They could be jealous, they could be sad, they could be happy. And we've certainly refined the specificity of how we reach those conclusions now. But there's a trajectory from the past to the present that was, you know, that is amazing and is gaining power all the time. Still, though, I will say, that the charge of anthropomorphism is wielded quite frequently. I don't know if you had wanted to talk about that, but that's a big deal in this type of work. Let's talk about it. Okay. So anthropomorphism, as you know, is the inappropriate attribution of human qualities or traits to other animals. And it's the single most frequent criticism of what I do. So when I wrote my last book, How Animals Grieve, I brought together what I found to be very powerful evidence, and I do use that word advisedly, that animals ranging from ducks to house cats to dolphins to chimpanzees to dogs may mourn if a friend, a partner, or a mate dies. And to me, that honestly doesn't seem incredibly shocking. These are animals who have relationships in their own lives, 
and have the capacity to feel. But when I brought out this book, you know, it, it has thankfully done, you know, done well. People have welcomed it. But there's also been the backlash of I'm just projecting because I want animals to be feeling smart creatures. So I'm kind of saying, well, this is what a human would feel. But if you think about it, the whole definition of anthropomorphism just tells us that that conclusion is highly arrogant. Why? Because it says that grief is human or happiness or joy or love is human. So we've abrogated that whole range of emotions and qualities and abilities for ourselves. And I just think that's flat wrong. I think that if we look carefully, the animals themselves are telling us by their behavior how they, something about how they feel. You know, we don't know all the details. We don't know what they're thinking. I'm not claiming to read animals' minds. I don't like the claim that anyone can read animals' minds. But looking at their behavior, yes. We just need to open our eyes and our hearts to what their behavior tells us. Yes. Well, you have a, a quotation in the new book that says, if we see an animal who's acting hungry, we don't have a problem believing that the animal is hungry. So why, if we see an animal acting happy or sad or grieving should that surprise uh-huh. us so much you know yeah. I, I lost um my mom two years ago this week i was just thinking about her and when i went through my grieving process i you know maybe this makes me strange i don't know but i actually felt very comforted by the fact that this is not a uniquely human experience it's a really tough thing and you know all of us will at some point in our lives lose someone and grieve and we know that that grief is connected to love and so i think animals love and that's why they grieve and that it is not a, just a human experience it's a sentient animal experience and that's a profound realization it is indeed i have learned so much since living with a dog of uh, the past four years and every time i come home his joy is palpable the only thing that makes him jump higher and do more flips is if I get out the tennis ball and <laughs> say that we're going to go play ball in the hallway. But the, the joy, you can't miss it. And just because he happens to be a species who's domesticated and whom we have taken a, among the few animals that we allow as companions, it, it doesn't mean a thing. There, I think every being with with life is is well equipped with emotion so barbara how do you see your work helping animals what's your vision for your legacy in this way Uh, i think a couple of ways and i always do try to emphasize that with this book and the public speaking that i'm doing and you know happily i'm doing a fair amount of it including at the reduced sectarian summit in may in new york city that I, I just want to give the activists who are already doing so much just one other tool in the toolbox, if you will. I have been you know, delighted with some vegan activists' willingness to say to me that, you know, this, this gives me a little extra ammunition. So just that I, how I learned so much from listening to vegans and learning about different foods I can try and, you know, different ways I can think about my diet. As a scientist, I think maybe I can contribute something to this endeavor that we're all involved in together, having this conversation about how we can reduce animal suffering because that means a lot to me. Also, I I do other work um, for animals. I have joined with PETA on certain projects. I spoke um, two years ago to uh, congressional staffers about a lab that was continuing maternal deprivation experiments in monkeys that were just unconscionable. In other words, taking baby monkeys from their mothers and putting them through difficult experiments. And this was an NIH laboratory. So I joined with a, a team organized by PETA. And through that activism and others too, you know, the lab did stop these experiments. Uh, on a more personal and local level, my husband and I have been very involved in animal rescue, so we have a little mini sanctuary for cats at our house and in our yard. So there's a whole number of ways that I try to go about this. 
it's it's wonderful. It's very exciting. And I think the opportunities, this is something certainly that I think listeners of, of this particular podcast, most of whom are vegan, can get so excited about because there are so many ways that we can get this out into the world. And you're doing it as a scientist and other people are doing it as as fashion designers or as chefs or as health professionals or entrepreneurs investors i mean they're the it's just infinite (laughs) yeah and i I will say that the the people who are the the vegan chefs and recipe makers and sharing all this information you know make um i don't have to tell you this but they make such a huge difference to people like me who are you know learning and experimenting because of course uh, you know, when I found out that vegan food is delicious, it made a difference, I have to say. And I did that by talking to and eating with people who knew more than I did. And that's the thing. We're all in this big web of network and knowledge sharing, and that I think is hugely effective. Mm. Now, you have a question on your list of sample questions here that I find really enticing because I don't know what kind of an answer <laughs> you had. Because I don't remember what I wrote now. <laughs> it says, do you have direct experience in the animal rights movement? Oh, right. Well, I just wanted to make the point that I just made, that part of my work is um, to join with animal activists in ways that include but also go beyond farmed animals. And the monkey example is one. And that makes sense because, of course, as you know, um, as I talked about, I started out watching monkeys in Kenya. And full circle, what I've wanted to do is come around and not just study monkeys but work for monkeys. And I'm very, very concerned about the number 100,000 monkeys in the United States who are held in biomedical laboratories. And so that's one way that I feel I'm part of the animal rights movement. We're working in different ways um, with some other primates as well as monkeys, with chimpanzees too, to make sure that they're not held in, you know, these terrible labs or roadside zoos or, you know, what have you. And there are too many that still are. So that's a way in which I can be a consultant because I've studied primates for so many years. And um, PETA and other animal rights organizations do reach out to scientists in order to make a coalition, and that's part of my role. And I love the coalition building that's part of the movement. It's just so important that we reach out and and draw on the expertise of so many people out there who can help make things better for animals. So within the scientific community as a whole, how are people like yourself and other scientists that we've mentioned today seen? Is, is this seen as legitimate or is there still a little bit of, oh, that's the one that likes animals? I would say both, to be honest but more and more the former, in other words, more and more legitimate. And I think that's because so many of us are taking care, as I did in Personalities on the Plate, to really explain the science in accessible terms. And I was very grateful that you that you felt that way about my book. In other words, we're trying to turn the science that's done into a vehicle to describe how careful the observations are. Um, and I, I can return to, oh, let's say goat problem solving, which I write about in my goat chapter, or even insect intelligence and learning. You know, how do these um, experiments, how are they devised? How do we know what we know? I think that's a big, big part of it. When we tell people that we have evidence and we know things, not because we're projecting, but because the animals are telling us through their behavior, that makes it very, very clear that the science is legitimate. Now, there's, of course, scientists who still push back and people who don't understand. In fact, just this past weekend, I read a column in the New York Times magazine by the New York Times ethicist who made a claim that only humans have lives that are actually constructed full of meaning and that if our lives are interrupted, something is taken away from us, but that's not true from other animals, for other animals. I was just stunned. In other words, he's saying that if other animals are killed, they're not losing all that much. And I'm thinking, well, what does a person like that think about all the science? 
how can a person like that dismiss all the science? And I don't have an answer for it because I think the science is very good, but there is that minority sort of, uh, you know, group out there who just don't see it. Well, I hope you wrote to him or her. Oh, you had better believe I did. Yes, I wrote uh, a long email that I sent to the ethicist column to the New York Times Magazine. I tweeted it. I'm writing about it in a long 3,000-word column. I'm on deadline for for a magazine right now. So I did reach out directly to this, you know, to the column first. And um, I was very disappointed, especially because of the great irony of this being an ethics column, when in fact it dismisses the legitimacy and validity of animal experiences right from the get-go. I mean, that does not yes. work for me. So, so well, what I'm I, saying is that, that we're not, you know, we, we who are in the scientific community who are working for animals and joining with, with all of you in the vegan community are making inroads, but there's so much work to do. There still is so much work to do. My hunch is that had that person been eating a plant-based diet, even for health, if this person had a physician who said, because of your heart or whatever it is, you need to eat no animal foods and only plant foods, I think that that piece of writing would have been different. Because just as you talked about the animals who were regarded in a more lowly context when the people were told that they were eaten, I think when we stop eating them, we see them differently. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the scientist in me would would want to set up an experiment. For example, if you're only <laughs> if you're only not eating animals for health reasons, which is good because it still helps animals. You know, however you get there, you get there. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that you wouldn't just be thinking, well, this is better for me. I'm a human, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm not sure. I just don't know. Well- as a non-scientist who's been in this work for over 40 years, uh-huh, uh-huh. I have known so many people who come in for their health and stay in for the animals. Completely uh-huh, non-scientific, but observational. Well, I'm happy to Bar- hear it. <laughs> Barbara, bless you. Barbara J. King, Personalities on the Plate. You must read this book. I hope to get to see you in New York City in May. Thank you so much for, or May, that's now, three weeks from now, uh, when, when you're here to speak. Uh, everybody, please also remember Better Eating International, kickstarter.bettereating.com. Let's get those teenagers veganized. And everybody, thank you for listening. Oh, my gosh, such an honor, such a pleasure. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Are you ready to live in joy? Is there an area of your life where you could use a miracle? Have you been praying for help and guidance? Come join Lisa and Bill and their guests for an hour filled with practical tips on experiencing miracles, greater abundance, focused, deliberate living, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Experience more joy in life. Listen to Living in Joy, Reflections on A Course in Miracles with Lisa Natoli and Bill Free every Friday at 2 p.m. Central here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. What if you were intentional about your life, committed to having more energy and being more vibrant? Join Reverend Temple Hayes, spiritual leader of First Unity at Unity Campus in St. Petersburg, Florida, as she guides you on a journey to an intentional and energetic life. Empower your life and fully express the wondrous energy, love, and joy you hold in your wildest imagining. 
joyfully and actively know that more important than what happens after you die is the deeper and enriching concern for what happens while you're living. How can you experience an incredible life right now? Learn how each week on The Intentional Spirit, Seeing and Being, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Central Time, right here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to live in joy? Is there an area of your life where you could use a miracle? Have you been praying for help and guidance? Come join Lisa and Bill and their guests for an hour filled with practical tips on experiencing miracles, greater abundance, focus, deliberate living, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Experience more joy in life. Listen to Living in Joy, Reflections on A Course in Miracles, with Lisa Natoli and Bill Free, every Friday at 2 p.m. Central, here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan-Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on The Kelly Sullivan-Walden Show, part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again... Don't take your dreams lying down.